Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> wow, everybody sounds awake this morning. So, <clears throat> I got to tell you, that song we sang together as a congregation there at last gave me goosebumps. What an incredibly powerful name that uh, we serve and, and choir. What a blessing to have God's love and grace fall on us and cover us and his light shine upon us. What a wonderful, wonderful thought this morning as we come before him and worship him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this opportunity that we have today. This opportunity to come before you and to worship you. We thank you for that powerful and that wonderful name of Jesus. We thank you that the name means so much to us, Lord, because of the relationship that we have with you through him. And we pray for those who may be here today who have come for whatever reason but have never, ever really experienced a relationship with you, we pray that today is the day that they will surrender all to you. For the rest of us, Lord, we pray that today we will grow a little bit closer to you, understand a little bit more about you, and Lord, just make a higher level of commitment to you. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Betrayed. Who has betrayed you? You think about that in your, your mind for just a minute, it, it probably doesn't bring up very good emotions. Probably doesn't bring up very happy memories, the word betrayed. Kevin Miller in Christianity Today said, David had his Absalom, Paul had his Demas who deserted him, and Alexander the coppersmith who, quote, has done me much harm, unquote. Jesus had Iscariot, and we all know about Judas, so the story may hold little drama for us, but we tend to forget that Jesus chose Judas after praying all night. They spent every day together for three years, talking, eating together, and laughing. Jesus sent him out in ministry, and Judas shared in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 people. His hands took the small, round barley loaves from Jesus and tore off chunks of bread for hungry people. And what makes each case of betrayal so painful is that someone who knows your heart, who knows your longings and your character, turns from that and chooses to believe that you are in some way dangerous. The mind freezes as it tries to grasp how a friend, someone who you knew deeply, who knew you intimately, could turn on you and attack you. Michael Card brilliantly captures the agony in one song, quote, Only a friend can betray a friend, a stranger has nothing to gain, and only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. If you look it up in the dictionary, the word betray means to lead astray, to deliver to an enemy by treachery, to fail or desert, especially in time of need. I love history and I read for fun, I'm weird that way, biographies of people in history. And I can remember years ago reading about the story of George Washington and his, his personal secretary. And, and, and there was another fellow, Charles Lee, who was actually a forefather of Robert E. Lee in the Revolutionary War. And Charles Lee wanted George Washington's job. And he thought George Washington was doing horrible and, and things were falling apart for the American army in the Revolutionary War and everybody seemed to be against George Washington. And, and Joseph Reed, his personal secretary, was one of his closest confidants. And by accident, George Washington opened a letter one day that was written from his enemy, Charles Lee, to his intimate friend, Joseph Reed. And, 
And it was an obvious response to a letter Reed had written expressing that he had lost faith in George Washington's leadership as well. Washington read the letter. He apologized in a letter back to Lee and he apologized to Reed. He took no action. He was not nasty. He just simply said, if I can paraphrase, I'm sorry for reading the letter. And I thought to myself when I read that for the first time, how do I react when people betray me? You know the hurt, you know the pain. Most of us here have in some way, at some level, to some degree, been betrayed by people who we know and we love and we trust, and and we know that it hurts. We know that it hurts deeply, and we know that it hurts for a long time, especially if it gets very intimate like a friend or a family member or even a spouse. But, But imagine with me for a minute that everybody close to you, around you, betrayed you at the same time. Imagine that all of the people that you have spent your life with in in this world, imagine that your closest group of friends, that they all joined together and betrayed you at the same time. And then you'll get a sense of what Jesus is going through as he heads to the cross. When all of his friends desert him, when all of his friends betray him, not just Judas, but when they all turn their back on him. Betrayal is a major theme in the last few days of Jesus' earthly life, but it is this very betrayal that sets the stage for the love of Jesus to shine through to the entire world. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at who is Jesus, and, and we've been kind of looking at scenes in in these days leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection that we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. And and the titles that are kind of wrapped up in these scenes that help us understand a little more about who Jesus is. We have seen the incredible love that he shared with his disciples in the upper room. And and through this title, The Bread of Life, we have come to understand that, that Jesus is the very sustenance of life. That whatever you need in your life, Jesus has the answer for everything that that we need to live and breathe and everything for our relationships, everything for life in general, Jesus offers to us. And then last week we looked at the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane and learned that nothing would deter Jesus' love for us. Nothing would keep him from going to the cross and that nothing deters his love for us every day right now. And we saw that he was called the Son of Man in this scene. And, and just to understand how he relates to us and loves us unconditionally. And this week we're going to pick up on that same scene just directly after the prayer we looked at last week. And I want us just to kind of see this in Matthew chapter 26. And this is the scene of his arrest, the the scene of his classic betrayal that we talk about from Judas. And I want you to imagine that you're there when we read this scripture. And I want you to kind of imagine that you're looking into the eyes of Jesus as he sees Judas coming with the soldiers to arrest him. Matthew 26 verse 46 says, "Rise, rise, Jesus says, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. 
Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Now listen to this last sentence. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All of the disciples, not most of the disciples, but all of the disciples deserted him and fled. In this very same scene where we see the humanity of Christ, in this very same scene where we see him as the Son of Man, and we begin to understand a little bit of the pain that he's going through and knowing that he's going to go to the cross. We begin to understand the love that he has for us. And, and as we read it, I think even begin to, to, to our heart to just kind of melt for this love that he has for us in such a way maybe that we would cry out, we will never leave you, we will never forsake you, we will never desert you, we will never turn our backs on someone who loves us that much. In that very same scene, Everything switches and the ones that he is going through the agony for betray him. The ones he's praying for desert him. The ones he's dying for turn their backs on him to, to preserve and protect their own lives. And so we see Jesus respond in this way. I love you anyway. To Judas... Friend, do what you've come for. There was no less love for Judas in that moment than there was when Jesus called him. There was this unconditional love that comes only from God Almighty. There was no less love for the disciples who deserted him. There was this unconditional love that comes from God Almighty himself. And that's why we look at Jesus this week and we look at the title that he uses for himself. Not just Jesus the Son of Man, but Jesus the Son of God. And as we observe these scenes, we begin to see this kind of divinity in Christ that loves us so much that all of these scenes begin to show us this unconditional love for every one of us to echo his love for those around him, then those who betrayed him, who walked away from him, and to you and I today. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Isn't that interesting? That here we have this divine love being shared with us, with the world, and yet the world turns their back on Jesus. Have you, any of you heard of Alice, this weird whale that swims around in the ocean and has for they, they discovered her in, in 1985. She, she, she lets out her noises at, at a, a decibel level, I guess is the way you would say it. I think it's like 52 hertz or something like that. But it's on a completely different scale than any other whale can hear. 
And as they were recording whales, they began to hear this whale. And, and it's a, a mating song. It's a, a love song, if you will, that whales do with each other to attract to each other. And she just swims around sending out these messages. But she's in the midst of hundreds of her own species, but nobody can hear what she's saying. And they call her the lonely whale. Swimming around with all of these people, but nobody gets her. Nobody understands her. Nobody knows what it, she's all about because nobody can hear on the level that she communicates. And I would expect that some of you are in here today who feel like there's nobody else in the world who communicates with you. That there's nobody else in the world that understands who you are, that understands the deepest parts of your soul, that understands your wants, your needs, your desires, even your pains and your hurts. We, we have this scene where we begin to understand that Jesus loves not only unconditionally, not only those people who come to him, but what we really do see in the scene that Jesus loves everyone that he understands all of us, that he communicates on a level that all of us understand and he understands all of our, heart, our heart's desires, all of our hurts, everything about us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, we get these words. It says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 13. And I'm going to read it from the message paraphrase. It says this. The earlier revelation was intended simply to get us ready for the Messiah, who then puts everything right for those who trust him to do it. Moses wrote that anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life regulated by fine print. But trusting God to shape the right living in us is a different story. No precarious climb up to heaven to recruit the Messiah. No dangerous descent into hell to rescue the Messiah. So what exactly was Moses saying? The word that saves is right here. As near as the tongue in your mouth, as close as the heart in your chest. It's the word of faith that welcomes God to go to work and set things right for us. This is the core of our preaching. Say the welcoming word to God. Jesus is my master, embracing body and soul. God's work of doing in us what he did in raising Jesus from the dead. That's it. You're not doing anything. You're simply calling out to God, trusting him to do it for you. That's salvation. With your whole being, you embrace God setting things right. And then you say it right out loud. God has set everything right between him and me. Scripture reassures us no one who trusts God like this heart and soul will ever regret it. It is exactly the same no matter what a person's religious background may be. The same God for all of us, acting the same incredibly generous way to everyone who calls out for help. Listen to this. Everyone who calls help God gets help. Amen? Everyone. Nothing will deter him from his love for you and us. Nothing would deter him to die for us. And that for us is for every single one of us. What Jesus went through and what we're looking at because he loved us and still loves us today that we learned about last week, all of that is offered to every single person. Jesus loves everyone and that includes you. Now for some of you out there, you're shaking your head like that's not incredibly deep. How long did it take you to put that together, right? I know that. I understand that. But the fact is, church, very often we don't live that way. 
Very often we live in such a way that we act like Jesus only loves those who are like us. Jesus only loves those who think a certain way. Jesus only loves those who act a certain way, even who dress a certain way. Jesus loves everybody. Now, let's return to the garden. And I want to put together a few categories of people that we see Jesus loving that still applies today. First of all, what we see in the garden is Jesus loves those who are led astray by religious people. Jesus loves those who are led astray by religious folks. Look at this scene from the sides of all the betrayers. Who are the religious folks of this day? The religious folks of this day are the very people who came to arrest him, the scribes and the Pharisees. Look in Luke chapter 22, verse 47 at his account. We'll read this. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading him. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Jesus, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, No more of this, and he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you do not lay hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Religious folks of this day were incredibly influential. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Jewish faithful were incredibly influential over the people who walked the streets and who lived in the homes of the area. Jesus is coming in, and he is proclaiming to them that I love you. He is proclaiming to them that he is the promised Messiah. He is proclaiming to them the truth of salvation and of the gospel message, and yet they are messing things up everywhere they turn with their witness. If you look at Matthew chapter 23, 13 through 39, you get a sense of what Jesus feels about this how he holds these religious leaders to a higher standard. I'm not going to read all that, but it's woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you blind guides. Woe to you teachers of the law. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then in verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers. We see this incredible kind of uh, a judgment poured out upon the religious leaders and the religious people of the day who are standing in the way of people coming to know the truth of Jesus. Now, here's what I want you to understand this Easter season. Church folk can hinder others from coming to Christ, even today. Church people and religious people oftentimes stand in the way of what God is trying to do. And and if we, as followers of Jesus, don't face those facts, we will become even more and more powerless to influence the communities where God has placed us. We will become more and more powerless to do anything except just to gather with the people who are like us and think like us and we're comfortable with and watch those numbers dwindle as we are doing in the church in America right now. Matter of fact, if you read a book by the name of Unchristian that was put out several years ago, one of the quotes that they have in that book is this. They did a bunch of research with people who were not Christians about what they thought about Christians in America. 
One of the quotes says, we discovered that outsiders express the most opposition toward evangelicals. Among those who uh, were aware of the term evangelical, the views are extraordinarily negative. 49% of everyone surveyed. Disdain for evangelicals among the younger set is overwhelming and definitive. Think of it this way. There are roughly 24 million outsiders in America who are ages 16 to 29, non-Christians. Of these, nearly 7 million have a negative impression of evangelicals, another 7 million say they have no opinion, and 10 million have never heard the term evangelical. That leaves less than a half million young people who are not Christian in America out of the 24 million who see evangelicals in a positive light. That, friends, is a problem. And I know, I've heard it, I'm a church guy, I've heard it, well, if they don't want to get their stuff straight and come in with us, then why do we want them? You know, they don't think like we think. They don't act like we act. they got to clean themselves up, and then we'll be interested. Oh, praise God, he didn't say that about me. Praise God, he didn't look at me and say, when you get yourself cleaned up, and when you start thinking right, and when you start doing the right things, then I'll love you. Then I'll serve you. Then I'll sacrifice for you. I was a pastor. I was very young. I was <clears throat> serving a church in Kelford, North Carolina. If anyone in here knows where Kelford, North Carolina is, raise your hand. I'll buy you lunch. Anybody? You know where it's at, really? In the back? All right. Good deal. Well, hang around. <clears throat> I got your lunch today. Okay. <clears throat> Kelford is in the middle of nowhere. It has 200 and some people in town. Everybody there is a peanut farmer who lives outside of town. And uh, I went there as a pastor when I was going to seminary, part-time pastor, ended up doing full-time work, fell in love with this community, which was 30 miles from the nearest McDonald's and 75 miles from the nearest mall. And I met this guy by the name of Craig. And Craig would come by my house almost every day. And he'd want to carry me, because that's what they do in the South. They carry you places. He'd want to carry me over to Roxabelle and carry me down to Greenville and all these places. And one day he came over and he said, I want to carry you over to a friend of mine. And he said, now, when I got in the car, I was like, oh, cool, you know. He said, now, what you need to know is these people hate preachers. <laughs> and I said, well, great. You know, I, I'm looking forward to this. Why do they hate preachers? Well, he said, I think I'll let them tell you. Okay, Craig, do they know you're carrying me over there today? No. If they knew I was carrying you over there today, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be there. He said, so, but I want, you to, I want you to talk to them. So here I am, about 23 years old, and I walk in. These people are 30s probably, got a, got a couple of kids, and, and their names are Tommy and Barbara. And I walk into Tommy and Barbara's house, and they're very fine southern folk. They're incredibly hospitable. And they invite Craig in. He's one of their best friends. And they invite me in. He introduced me as his friend Ed. And we go in. We sit down in their living room. And they're just as nice as can be. And then Craig says, well, Ed is the new pastor down at the church I go to. And everything changed. And Barbara, the lady, visibly just went cold. And I said to her, I said, tell me your story. Why is it you're so mad? Well, let me tell you my story. I got married when I was 18 years old. I got married to a guy down the road here from the community. 
said we were both involved in his church where his parents went. He beat me up and put me in a hospital once. He beat me up and put me in a hospital again before I turned 19. He beat me up and put me in intensive care when I was 19. And when I was 20, I left him. And I got a visit the next week from the deacons of the church explaining to me that being the unfaithful wife I was, not to stick with my husband through his stressful times that caused him to beat on me, I was no longer welcome in the church. Now, I looked at her and I said, I don't blame you for never wanting to go back. I don't blame you for the way you feel about me. And I apologize for those people who have no idea who Jesus is and what he's really like who treated you that way. And folks, I tell you that story to say this. By the way, I baptized her four years later. She received Christ. I baptized both of her kids and I baptized her husband before I left North Carolina. And she's still a great friend today. And I say this to say this. That's not the only place where people are sitting in your community not going to church and want nothing to do with you because of something some other follower of Christ has done. We've got to be serious about loving the people that Jesus died for. We've got to be serious about literally apologizing for the ways we as the church have treated other people in other times. But Jesus loves these people. He loves those who are hurt by religious and church folks. In 1 John 2, 9 through 11, we read this. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Here John is talking to church folks who have been blinded by the darkness. I look at Facebook every day. How many of you all look at Facebook? You know, horrible, isn't it? Raise your hands high and be proud that you're addicted to that horrible piece of stuff out there. I look at it every day. You know, how many of you got Christian friends on Facebook? How many of you read your Christian friends' posts and cringe because of what non-Christians are thinking? How, how do you call people those kind of names as a follower of Christ, no matter what they believe or who they support as a political candidate? How do you act that way? You can't act that way and claim to know Christ according to this scripture. You need to love those around us. Guess what? Jesus also loved those religious leaders. As a matter of fact, when we start to get so condemning of those folks and we're reminded, well, guess what? He loves those people just as much as he loves the ones that they have turned away. He loves those who are adamantly opposed to him as a matter of fact. Here's Judas coming up to kiss him and betray him. Here's Judas who was in the upper room who has been through all of the miracles. And in 2650, Jesus says, friend, do what you came for. He wasn't being sarcastic there. He wasn't trying to make a point there. I think Jesus was simply addressing him in the same relationship he was still in with him, a friend who he loved. This is not what Jesus wanted to happen in Judas' life. And you know that Judas remembered the words in John 15, 11 through 14, where Jesus said, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. You know Judas remembers those words as he says, Friend, do what you came for. 
You may be hurt by a death. You may be hurt by circumstances of your life. You may simply be too smart to believe. Whatever your case of why you have not surrendered yourself to Christ, here's the thing. Jesus still loves you anyway. Even though you, like Paul in his early life, was, were kicking against the goads, even though you spit in his face with your lifestyle, even though you deny him with who you are and what you do and how you act, he still went to the cross for you. And he still has hope in you. And he still died for you. And he was still resurrected for you. So if you're here today, you may not be one of those people who have been hurt by church folk. You may be someone who has been adamantly opposed to God for some reason in your life. But I am telling you, no matter your background, Jesus looks at you today and says, I love you, friend, even though you've done these things. And I want you to surrender to me. Now, some of you in here may be thinking, well, you know what? I had great grandparents and parents who taught me what it was like to really be a Christian and taught me what it was like to love like Jesus. And I've really never had anyone in, in the church that let me down or led me astray. And, and I've really never stood adamantly opposed to God. As a matter of fact, from my youngest days, I can remember respecting God and then receiving him as my Lord and Savior. But some of you may remember respecting him but never making that decision. Some of you may remember growing up in church, but you've never really committed your life to him. And the reason is because you messed up. Somewhere along the line, nobody really led you astray, and you weren't really adamantly opposed to God, but you simply messed up. You committed a sin in your life that everybody knows about. You did something that let others down. Well, here's the good news. Jesus loves those who love him and mess up. Jesus loves those, even you, who know him as Lord and Savior and who mess up. In Matthew 26, 56, it says, This has all taken place that the writings of the prophet might be fulfilled, and then those who believed in him did what? Those who followed him did what? They all fled. They all deserted him. Not only his enemies, but his friends left him alone. The ultimate betrayal. Those who had some understanding of what was going on. Those who had already fallen asleep as he was praying. Those who had already had that, that scene in the upper room with him. And maybe that's you. Maybe at a young age you received him as Lord and Savior. Maybe you were raised in the church, but you've messed up and you're like, you know, I just can't believe that God would forgive me. He forgave those disciples who left him standing with those soldiers to be crucified. Forgave him even as they were leaving, I believe. He also has forgiven you if you know him as Lord and Savior. No matter what you've done, no matter what your background is, no matter what your list of sin is, Jesus loves those who love him and mess up. <clears throat> One of the true marks of a friend is that he is there when there is every reason for him not to be. It's a quote by Gary Enrig. If you're here today and somebody in the church has set a really bad example for you, Jesus loves you, and you need to let that go. If you're here today and you're one of those people in the church who 
isn't paying attention to what your witness is saying to the rest of the people, I would say to you, listen to the woes and realize how serious your life is and how much influence you have on other people around you. If you're someone here today who has been adamantly opposed to God in your life, you've been mad at him, you've been angry with him, or you've just been totally refusing to believe in him, I want to tell you, he loves you anyway. And if you're here today and you know him, but you've messed up, he loves you too. Guess what? I can't find anybody from cover to cover of that book that he doesn't love. He loves us all. He's the son of God, after all. Would you join me in prayer?